When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay, then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. Who can forget DC Lee's massive hit, See the Day? I want to hear this music. I've not heard this music in such a long time. Shut up! But although her career started earlier, it kicked off when she joined Wham! I kept trying to convince them they needed a female member in the band. They weren't having any of that. The only person ever to perform on the same Top of the Pops for two bands. I had two dressing rooms. Shelly, look, let's go to my dressing room over here. Let's go in my dressing room over here. She left Wham to pursue her own career, but she remained in the Style Council for many years. The more I was working with the Style Council, the more I really wanted to branch out too. A new album is coming, a new single is out, and soul singer DC Lee has gone back to her roots. You must never forget what you're about. So stand by for a great interview with DC Lee. And don't forget, please subscribe. Well, listen, DC Lee, I've had, to be honest, up till now, I've had an amazing day because I've had you <laughs> on um, Spotify with all, you know, with everything that you've been involved with wow. <laughs> all day long and wow. repetition. And I feel like I've been stroked and sold and you know this soulful voice and it's been really lovely so I just want to thank you for that I could stop thank you there <laughs> but oh I darling thank you so much you're so sweet no thank you honestly you have no idea it really means a lot to me you know um I haven't done anything in a really long time and I kind of forgot myself you know my kids were like mom you know your voice and it's really weird how you just forget you know and and so to come back to it and listen to some of the old stuff and some of the new stuff, just to come back, just to listen to myself. Um, I've become quite self-conscious because I feel that I've done such a good job without sounding my, you know, how you say about sounding, blowing your own trumpet. But I now feel like, you know, I really want to make sure I keep it like that and even better. So I put a little pressure on myself, but not in, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, well, I think but, it's really, uh, your career has been really interesting because of that gap. And I'd like to come to come to that later and your perspective today course, and obviously what you're course. doing. But I want to start really when you were a child and the family that you were brought up with. And in a sense, not only what music they were listening to, but what the sort of creative atmosphere was in the family, if there was one. That's a great question. Um, yeah, so growing up, uh, my, my mum is uh, St. Lucian. In fact, both my parents are St. Lucian, but uh, I grew up with my uh, with my mother's husband, my stepdad, and he was Bajan. Uh, so basically, we had a lot of good music in the house. We had Caribbean music, and then the tastes of my parents, uh, especially my mum, we were listening to Tamla Motan, we were listening to Jim Reeves, we were listening to Nat King Cole, and uh, the one that really stuck uh, for me as a as a little shoddy was um, Dinah Ross, uh, The Supremes, the Ain't No Man Tin High Enough, Time, 
and also some of her earlier stuff. But oh, I tell you what, I really remember Lady Sings the Blues, uh, that kind of music anyway. But that was a bit later. So I'm sorry, I digress because you've got me thinking about music now. But uh, so that was what I grew up listening to and then mixed in with pop, you know, whatever was around in the early 70s on top of the pops and, and, and such like. What I read is I, I read an interview with with your son, Nat, in the Daily Mail and in there. And I you know you can't always believe everything in the Daily Mail, but <laughs> it did say that um, French in your family and also Japanese. Is that right? Uh, yes, we, um, we, we have a really, my, my, my mum, my dad is mixed race St. Lucian, so my granddad is French, uh, white French, uh, that, so that's the French in the family, he's no longer with us. Um, we have the, the, I'm not sure that it is Japanese because we've had conflicting reports from various members of the family. So rather than it being Japanese, I think we have Asian. We have an Asian and it could be Chinese, it could be Japanese. One needs to go and see those those people that do the ancestry thing in a lot more detail. But that's basically what what, what he meant, yeah. When you were young, when did you realise um, you had a voice? I... I... Because I just liked music, I you know like like all kids. So listening to what my parents are listening to, they my mum is basically a singer. She never made it as a singer, but she always was singing. So I was forever mimicking her for a start, and uh, then she would just make me sing along to whatever records are on, and I could I could pitch with them. I could be in key. So that in itself got you know a couple of members of family going oh. You know, she, she can, maybe she can sing. You know how you know how family do. <laughs> so I did sort of, you know, did a couple of little singing lessons at school. I'm sure I joined the choir for a little while, but there was another side to me, and I don't know why. I was slightly disruptive. So, could you believe that? Look at this face. But I was kind of disruptive, so I kind of kept getting kicked out of things like that. But it was because I, I think when I look back now, it's because I wanted it to be about me, the singing. So I didn't want to be in the choir. I didn't want to be <laughs> big headed little thing. But, uh, you know, there I was, you know, so I started to just pull away from that and look into my personal life and with kids. And I was always scouting what kids, what boys, who's got, you know, who's into music. And I started to hang out with a bunch of youngsters who are all into music. And one thing led to another. You mentioned Diana Ross. And when I was a young teenager, I remember seeing David Bowie on television. And for me, as a young gay teenager, seeing David Bowie, it was a world where I thought, oh, this is a world where I could belong. And it was an identification figure. Was Diana Ross for you an identification figure for, for a, a young black person of that yes. year to see someone who's successful and a woman? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a great question. But also, I mean, as much as Diana Ross was, and also there with my very first icon for a little black girl, her name was Diane Carroll. Her name is Diane Carroll. Very old school, back in the day actress. And she was the first black actress I've ever seen on TV in a, in a sitcom. And I can't, I can't remember that, but but I just loved it. And she was very classy and very, you know, and I'm sure 
in the times in those times when that program had been made, I'm sure that was that was definitely Hollywood's take on it. I'm sure it wasn't half as lovely as it appeared in the sitcom. But you know, I did like that, and it was the first time I'd seen somebody my colour, you know, doing something. So I thought, oh, we we we, you know, oh well, I can do that too, you know. Diane Carroll was in Dynasty, wasn't she? Which is where her massive role was. That was a bit later in the eighties, but she was. But um, in the early, in the very early days, she was in a, she was playing a single mum with with a little kid, but I can't remember what it was called, and I can't remember she was she play, she wasn't playing a cleaner. She might have been a, do you know what? I might have to really research that now. Now you've got my memory going now, and uh, now I'm totally intrigued by my own memory. But Diane Carroll definitely, she was my very first, and then after her was Diana Ross. For me, being. Um a young gay teenager in that period and then growing up through the late 70s and 80s into my adulthood it was a shitty society if you were gay if you were black yeah if you were a woman there was so much misogyny around not that things have changed completely but you know that era was absolutely awful so how was it to be a person of color growing up in that era well i'll tell you something and this is where i'm really very very lucky my mum very much, the way she protected me from racism was she taught me to literally feel sorry for people like that. And I grew up to believe, and I'm not wrong, that people who can be that you, that dismissive of, and, and cruel to other people, barely, on the, barely based on the colour of their skin, not their personality, not their, who they are as a person, etc., my mum was like, well, they're very poor people and, you know, they're very sad. And she just, she ended up making me feel quite sorry for them. So when I was quite young, I remember when I was called things and stuff, once or twice, I mean, once or twice I'd get into a little bit of a fight, but once or twice I'd say, I literally did think, oh, you know, my mum almost made me feel like they were like mentally disabled or something. So I was kind of pitying them and I was talking to them with, with pity and I was actually talking down to them, but I didn't even realise that I was. So... I didn't let it get to me. My mum was always like those, you, you know, those poor things, darling, you know, they're so thick. Imagine being that thick, you know what I mean? She used to say that to me all the time. Don't let it get to you, you know, it's not their fault, you know. They're, so, you know, she she helped she, she helped me get over it in a ladylike way, it, it, up to a point, but there was, but I say up to a point, and then the rest of the times, yes, it was, it could be hard. And you just have to get smart. You don't, there's no point in this, you know, you get, it's, it's a very human natural reaction to want to fight people. But quite frankly, it gets you no, not really anywhere. It's belittling to you as a human being. And the best way to deal with that is to go and face it the way that I think that we're doing now, having it called out, uh, blacklisting, that's a, <laughs> pun not intended, blacklisting people that don't know how to behave themselves to other humans. You know, we're, we're going in a you know, good, I, I kind of like the way that uh, people think so much more these days. Uh, like some things, you know, sometimes maybe it's a bit full on, but I think sometimes things have to be a bit full on for people to get it. And then you ease out and then it becomes normal. You know, that's 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 what I think. Yeah, we've been through a massive process. When did jazz come into your life? Jazz came into my life, uh, firstly from jazz funk. So as a teenager, I used to love dancing and anything to do with entertainment by the looks of it, looking back now. But yeah, I loved dancing. It was a big thing for me back in the day. Uh, it was a big thing with, in my youth movement. Uh, we used to have, uh, I was a soul girl. Uh, there were soul heads. 
there were mods, there were, in fact, I only remember mods and soul heads and they all got on very well. And that was the sort of crew I used to hang with. And jazz funk came into it, started listening to people like Donald Byrd and Lonnie Liston Smith. And, you know, pe people more than that, the reason these guys have totally come to mind straight off without a script in front of me is that um, I worked, I, I got the opportunity to work with them, which, you know, we can talk about later, but, but I started listening to music like that. And I found that fusion of musicianship and vocals together, such a lovely thing. Even more so, you know, you mix vocals. The vocals are not necessarily saying anything, but they're just there as almost like another instrument. And that's what I loved about the way Lonnie Lister-Smith works and the way Donald Byrd works, especially. And even Dexter Wansaw and people like that, the way they mix the, the vocals, whether they be male or female, Earth, Wind and Fire, they mix the vocals with the, with the, with the, with the music. And it's all one thing that to me is just, well, I just love it. And then through that, I started to try and grow up and listen to even more jazz. And I've got to say, the the, the love has stuck, definitely. I mean, you jazz mentioned fresh. It's always fresh jazz. That's what I love about it. I mean, you mentioned those influences. And whenever I've talked to artists, they always mention a particular artist or band. And their first thing they do is they mimic before they find their own style. So who exactly. were you mimicking to find your own style? Exactly who I'm talking about. I was mimicking the vocalist that the, that Roy, the, the vocalist that Roy Ayers would, would use, the vocalist that Donald Byrd would use, and the vocalist that Lonnie Liston-Smith would use, and also the vocals that Earth, Wind & Fire did for themselves in some of their early 70s type tracks. And you do, I was mimicking that. And I the biggest compliment I ever got was so many years later working with these guys on the Guru Jazzmatazz tour. I was told by Donald Byrd and Lonnie Liston that I really do remind them. My voice reminds them of the girls from back in the day. I did. I almost laughed, but I was like, "Well, if that does, that's an absolute compliment to me." Just because that's exactly who I started training my vocals on, so it stuck, and and then I've changed it from there. <clears throat> So you actually told no, Donald Byrd sorry, that how I'm... Sorry, I've got a massive frog in my throat. I've been right. singing all day. Forgive me one sec. Okay. So, so you told <laughs> Donald Byrd, you gave him also the compliment and said to him, you know, this is where I learnt. I exactly. learned from your Yes, I got, I got the chance to do that. So, you know, I would, never have, I would never have said it if it wasn't for the fact that I was backstage with all these other jazz greats. And... Donald Byrd and Lonnie Liston were getting into an argument with some other jazz greats who I can't remember the names now, but they were they were saying how uncool it is to mix the jazz with the hip hop and how jazz is such a pure thing. And and the guys are going, no, you know, but jazz is also progressive. And the both arguments were, were really great. And I was just eavesdropping on this argument. And then Donald Byrd went, take her, take her, for example, sort of thing. And oh, <laughs> so I got dragged into it. He goes, she sings like the girls from back in the day. And the reason she does that is because she was telling me that, you know, she listens, she's listening to that stuff and this is what it is. It's a progression. And then, and then I got chucked out the, uh, the thing again. But they were on this massive big, you know, big discussion about who should, you know. So I just, it, it, was, it was so interesting, so very interesting. And, and uh, that was when I got the opportunity afterwards to say to Donald, well, you know, I do those kind of vocals, those early vocals. That's exactly what I started to 
train my voice on and the way that they scatter and the way they you know flow in and out you know the vocals I totally love music <laughs> I can tell I mean there is a beautiful undulation to your voice when you say that as well that's what I really noticed that this sort of flow that you have this thing within your within your voice so it's like not just the song but then within that there's another level to it I almost like to think it sounded you know I mean I'm not you know I'm not one of the very best singers at all I know that but um but I kind of like to think I'm using my vocals even though I'm singing and singing words I like to think I'm using it the way I don't know a saxophonist would do something or even a guitarist would do something so sometimes I make my vocals do these Hit, approach a note the way that maybe a guitar might approach it or the way a saxophonist might approach it. Do you know what I mean? Whether or not it actually does that, that's what I think in my head. And then whatever notes come out, whatever notes come out. And so far it seems to be working. <laughs> now, as a teenager, you were growing up at the start of this Brit funk era. That's and right. That is really interesting, I think, because the people you were hanging out with, um, I presume you're also hanging out with people who were in that or going into that uh, scene um, and obviously people of colour going into that scene, having the same experience oh, and in a way becoming the identification figures for the generations. Yeah, after. thank you. I mean, it was a big deal to us. And you're talking about guys like Light of the World and Central Line. Yes, of course, I was hanging out with all those guys. I, they couldn't get rid of me. You remember when I talked to you about uh, starting to find like-minded kids <clears throat> making music, somehow I got directed in all these guys' direction. And I was there like a pain in their butt, you know what I mean? I was really there just hanging around, picking up what they were doing, being really amazed that they could do the, the riffs, the, you know, the, 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 the bass riff that we've just heard on an Earth, Wind and Fire or something like that. I just, and I'd be hanging out. That didn't seem like any time had passed at all. So I went for a stage of literally not even sleeping at night, just being up in the studio at night, going home, getting literally a couple of hours sleep and going off to work, you know, because I started work quite young. As I said, I was a bit of a tear away. So I had to leave school quite early. <laughs> so I had to grow up very early. So I was working by the time I was about 15, but I couldn't wait to get out of school because I wanted to get to singing. I needed, I needed to be free to find my way to start singing. Have you ever identified where your drive may have come from, whether there was a specific event in your childhood? Because a lot of people have, and I'm going to use this term loosely, because there's big trauma and there's just trauma. The first day at school is a trauma. Do you know what I yes, mean? Yes. And, and sometimes things happen in your childhood and it's a trigger for you to, to get pushed and, and go to an area where, you, where in a sense you get compensation for whatever happened in the past, the compensation maybe being loved, which I think is why I ended up on MTV and, yes. you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. But do you think there was an event that I triggered do. you? I do. And I've got to say, I think your questions are really, really on the on the ball. You're a very good interviewer. I like, I like your questions. And uh, to go back to what you just asked me, most definitely, most definitely. I'm now literally recognising... Uh, because I see it in other people, everybody who does, that has some sort of a talent and does very well, there tends to be something that kind of pushed you. And there's things to be said for that, but everything comes with a price, I think, you know, because I would have done anything to not have my kids go through any kind of trauma. 
uh, but then it some say could make them soft. Did, did the, but you know what? I'd rather that than ever have. I think any parent would not willingly, even though you know it might toughen them up or whatever, you'd never want to put your kids through something terrible, especially, especially if you've been through it yourself. So, yes, there's definitely something to be said for that, definitely. My, my father um, never really had anything to do with me when I was a young child and didn't show, didn't, he didn't want hey, a third child, didn't really show me any love because I was the reason he had to stay in the marriage. Right. Sense, because of that era. Yes, so I can imagine. I, because I didn't get that love, I think I looked for love. Can you tell me what you, what that event may have been, if you want to share it? Um, I can't, I, I can't share the event with you, but what I will tell you is that it definitely was, uh, uh, the singing and getting, how you say, getting praised for the singing before I was even professional, just singing for the family, singing for friends, you know, that would always make me the center of attention. And that seemed to become quite, a uh, a big thing for me. And it was my validation because I think without that, what I went through, I could have been one of those kids who might not have been here. So, yeah. So okay. I think it, it was definitely my thing to, to keep going. And I let, I definitely, all my emotions and pain and whatever would always melt away. And, and I'd forget about it when I was singing. So, yeah. So singing takes me somewhere else, still does. And if the day it stops doing that, I, I won't be doing it. When, when I sing and when I do what I do, it is really like, it's the closest I'll probably ever come to acting, I suppose. You know what I mean? Because I just turn into somebody else and become somebody else and this stuff just comes out from inside. And, you know, I I listen to it back and I can always feel that emotion, every, you know, when I listen to my own songs back. So I can mimic them straight away again. So you, it's like, if you get what you get on record, you'll def very much get live. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's 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 a different vessel, and it's a it's a good thing for me. It's a beautiful way of describing it. That era, you know, you mentioned Light of the World. You mentioned Central Line. Freeze was another. There were so yes, many, so many great bands second around image. that time. There was yeah. Second Image. Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember all of them now. Because you know what? Where did I just turned around? I just turned around and suddenly I'm this age and all this stuff is all ages ago. What the hell? I just keep going, what? I literally, I just turned around and put a cup of tea down on the side and now I've turned back and it's all these years, do you know what I mean? That's how it seems to me. Literally like you've blinked and it's, you know, and I've done a lot. So you'd think that I'd feel, you know, but no, it just everything from early, from those early days upwards, everything has just gone far too quickly. And I can't believe that I'm talking about it in the past tense. <laughs> When did you start actually writing um, some of your own material? When did that come along? Ah, that's interesting because when I was very young and going through the trauma, which we won't talk about, but uh, I was writing then. I was in a lot of writing then because writing was the first outlet that I had, you know, so I used to write, I wouldn't say journals, but I just used to write stuff. And I stopped doing that. Uh, I was writing right up into my late teens. By the time I got in, just writing down my thoughts and what was going on. But yeah, it was, the, so I went back to a lot of some of the scribbles I had done. And then I'd hear music that invokes a certain emotion. And I'd just take a couple of lines from what I started off writing about and add to it or take away from it and make it mold to this melody. 
that's the beginnings of how I started songwriting. I know that, um, I, I mean, See the Day will come a bit later in the interview in a sense, but I just wondered if that was a that was one of the songs that you had started as at a very early age. No, that one, oh, no, that one I started, but I, when I say an early age, not as early as what I'm talking about, but it, I did, that did come to me when I was about 18 years old, literally. And I was sat in the house on a rainy afternoon with this big dog that my boyfriend at the time had got to protect me in the house. And I was fond of my own dog. So I remember the, <laughs> the dog was sat outside because it was bigger than me. And I was just looking out the window. Then this black and white film came on and I swear to you, I cannot remember what it was. I wasn't really watching it, but the gist of the story was somebody being in love with someone who didn't even notice them. That triggered see the day. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to read the first lines to it because it really is like a, an amazing poem. I just loved it because uh, when you look at me, tell me what you see. Yeah. Do you see no love at all? Or do you see me in what you always see in every girl that you fall for? I will show you how love is meant to be. Just watch and learn and listen to me. And for me, that's it's, you know, because I thought maybe you've written that at a very young age. For me, that's such a grown up and... Uh, developed person yes. about writing this about I was art. about 18 and I don't know well, what the hell I was thinking about but it just came to me like that and and triggered by this film and just been in this very sort of weird sort of mood so and and then I thought yeah I should listen to that mood a bit more because sometimes you just feel it come on and you can things just start to flow and the other way that I write is that I get back in tracks and I can just feel this backing track or I really don't. But if I feel it, I can add to it. And then I can add vocal melodies. I can add lyrics and then I can turn this, this, this groove into a song, obviously with the help of a producer, but the, the main, you know, the, the, the lyrics and the vocal melody, once they gel with whatever backing track I've got, yeah, the rest all becomes very interesting and mixing with and all that. So yeah, sorry, I went off. I think I went, of course, then. <laughs> no, I want to go back to Central Line because, in a sense, Central Line with, with all the members, Steve Savari, Kamel Hines, um, right. who, who was in Style Council later. That's right. Then you've got Lips and Francis, Henry Defoe. You've also got Mel Gaynor, who then went into Simple Minds. You're the you only person had, who knew this. Yes. You even had George Chandler and Jimmy Helms. Jimmy Helms, of course, in the 70s. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And then yeah. the both of them in London Beat later on. So Central Line I didn't even know that. Yeah. It's an amazing, you know, when you look back and say, wow, all these people in, yeah. in one group, how exciting was it to, or did you understand the excitement of that era? Oh, God, yeah, of course I did. I mean, you know, I was lucky that they let me hang out because, you know, I, I kept trying to convince them they needed a female member in the band. <laughs> they weren't having any of that. But <laughs> I did keep trying to convince them. I was there tap dancing and everything. They weren't having any of it. But um, but they did let me hang out at the studio. They did let me listen to them putting songs together. They did let me be a part of the backing of, of doing backing vocals you know, on tracks, you know, any tracks that needed an extra fattening up. And once or twice, worth the hanging out, my voice being female could actually, this could actually work here. Just, you know, so I'd get a little piece in here and a little piece in there. 
But yeah, just being around those guys was so inspiring. Come on, it was fabulous times. When I talked to Junior Giscombe, he said something really fascinating to me about that period, that it was the first period where uh, black artists were performing for black British audiences. The yes. connection. Good was, point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Were, were you really aware of that and, and, and that connection that you were living the same lives? Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Well, see, this is different for me. This is much different for me. So even though I started off with Central on all these guys, I didn't actually get to do anything live as such with these guys. We didn't do anything like that. It was all in the studio. So the very first time I got to go live to a, a real audience, because I had done loads of live work before Wham, I had done that, but they weren't big, you know, they were very different different sorts of gigs because I was just a uh, how you say just a job in vocalist you know so the point being um by the time I did speak or sing to an audience they were mainly white as far as I knew because I was with Wham so I you know I, I didn't really see that but then it was only halfway through the Star Council career I started to see a lot more black British kids and people in the audience, and not just black, you know, Asian, and just different, slightly different colours. And don't get me wrong, in those days, those those audiences, they were fabulous. They were great to me, but it it was it didn't it didn't freak me out or anything that I didn't see any black faces or anything. I wasn't freaked out or nothing. I was just aware that oh, you know, there's not many black people here, whatever. Uh, but then later on, I started to see that, and it kind of made me smile. It was it was interesting. It did make me smile a, a few times. And I remember a couple of times uh, after after a couple of Star Council gigs and I turned around and said to the boys, I said, did you notice there was a couple of black people there? And they were like, yeah. And I said, that's really good. They're like, yeah, that's really good. We're really happy about that. We, we were really happy about that. So yeah, so slightly different experience to, because Junior went straight out on his own. Yeah. You know, the, doing his cool, funky thing that he was doing. <laughs> what a great track that was, eh? Mama used to say, I love that track. That's oh, a, yeah. I, I, um, you, you obviously mentioned Wham, and I always felt that Wham were influenced by Brit Funk. There, oh, there was wow. something that, in that. that. That's why we got on. That's exactly why we got on. Uh, because when I met them and we started hanging out, um, I realised that they were so into the same music as me anyway, all the jazz funk and the disco and the, you know, everything. And definitely the Brit funk stuff. So when I told them that I, you know, got my vo my vocals on a couple of central line things, I was like, no, yeah, that makes me look really pretty cool. <laughs> also helped me get the job. <laughs> so, so who yeah. introduced you to George and Andrew? Uh, it was a record company thing. It, I was literally jobbing. Uh, I was doing a job where you sing for songwriters who don't sing. So I was just doing like about two or three songs a day uh, to have them ready to give to other people, other artists who want to use them. And so it was almost like a nine to five job. And while I was doing this in, in, my, in my lunch break, I got a call saying, you know, after work, go meet these people is a good work opportunity for you. And they think you might fit the bill. That was all I knew. Uh, I did go after work, turned up, met them. And they told me the, the record company guy was like, oh, this is George, this is Andrew. Now these guys, they're gonna blow up. They're gonna they're gonna start this band and they've got a girl, they want one more girl and they really, really like the look of you. And uh, you know, and plus you can sing too. Uh, how do you think? I said, like, oh, that's great. Cause you know, 
for the first time I'm doing something where I'm sort of up front because normally I'm, at, you know, in the back. It's all good. But uh, I thought, well, I'll give it a try, you know. But I didn't have any idea they'd blow up as big as they did. <laughs> that kind of freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> what, when I talked to... I know Simon Napier-Bell came a bit later in, yes, in terms of George's career. But when I talked to Simon Napier-Bell, he said when he met the two of them that uh, Andrew was a... Um, a bit more well George was very focused that was the point and yes George was extremely yeah. focused knew what he and, wanted. and shy he was very quiet Andrew did most of the talking when, when I when I met them he still does now I still hang out with him sometimes and he still doesn't let me get a word in <laughs> <I'm only joking. laughs> yeah. but did, did George give a vision to you of what they were what they were going for oh Straight away, straight away, he was so focused and I loved his focus because I hadn't met any other young people and they were like a couple of years younger than me who were as focused as what I thought I was, you know? Uh, so I loved the idea and I just thought, I'd love to be a part of this. You know, this sounds, you know, I'll do it in my spare time, you know, I'll do it without getting paid because it sounded like a really good, you know, I, I love the idea and I've always wanted to be in a band. But as we went on, it was very quickly, you know, as a success came and that was fabulous. It, be it became aware very quickly that Wham was always going to be just George and Andrew. A bit like how I felt with Central Line, you know, you can't just muscle your way into that, that setup no matter how much you try. <laughs> so just like Central Line, you know, it was just going to be those guys. So, you know, I got the most out of it that I could and it was a fabulous and not just fun experience it you know I learned something and it was my first really knowing what it's like to do big you know big shows big people and be in demand that, you know for the first time with Wham I was in demand and that's the beginning of some good things. Stick with this interview because DC Lee will be talking more about Wham about her time in the Style Council and of course her new album and single. And don't forget, please subscribe. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the U.S. Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. That's cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Did you feel that you maybe swallowed up in it and that's why you actually decided to leave because it became too much in a sense and you're typecast? Yeah. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. It wasn't so much that 
I wouldn't have minded that, but I wasn't I wasn't a part of the band. It was becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And I the only way I can describe it is like I suddenly felt like either a soap actor or a Bond girl. You know, you're doing the same part all the time, and then they're gonna you might get elbowed and you're you've now stuck with this image. And you might, you know, and my image, I've got so much more to me than that. I just, this is just one side of me working with Wham, and I'm happy to give them this side. But I, I didn't want to stay just showing this side and not being able to grow. So I knew that even though I wasn't a part of the band and I was what that, you know, like regular session, I knew it was going to come to an end, at, you know, at some stage. Every time they got success, I could see that that original early setup was starting to, you know, come away. And, you know, that's that's what progress is. You know, when we meet people, we always think about or often think about what we learned from that person. Um, what do you think, instead of what you thought you learned from George, what do you think George learned from you? Um, I don't know what he might, might not have learned. Um, he did. He was very proud of the fact that I had actually already been on stage a few times. So I think, cause he was incredibly shy. And I think we had chats about what you do when you're on stage or what you don't. And I said, and I said, I don't know what it is, but you just turn yourself into somebody else and you're a performer and you just, you know, just, just be yourself and give yourself or give a version of yourself. And if you believe in whatever it is you're behind, that it will come to you naturally anyway. I remember telling him, cause he was in so incredibly shy, bless him. But other than that, I don't really think there was much. You know, the guy was totally focused. He was really, really focused. He really knew what he wanted. He really knew where he was going. I just didn't think when he, I think when it when he got it, it was all too much for him. But that's another story. Poor little sausage. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got a George Michael story in the world. I'm going to tell you one. It's a fun one. It's Good. really nice. Because yeah, it was fun. Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've got a few, <laughs> some of them are really weird, but one of them is brilliant. And it was like a friend of mine told me this, that she was in the WAG club where you used to go, where I went a few times, where George used to go. And her friend turned up, this guy, and he said, you won't believe who I've just seen on the street. And she said, well, who? He said, George Michael. And he's singing Careless Whisper at the top of his voice, walking down the street. And, <laughs> and he's a bit tipsy. And, and a friend went... Right? I just said, had um, a wee dram or two, he might have. <laughs> and his friend said to this guy, oh, don't talk shit, you know. And, so, and then George walked in, you know what I mean? That that moment, she said, don't talk shit. So I love the idea. This like, vision so of to work. singing we his own song at the top yeah. of his voice, walking down yeah. the street. He loved his music and he was very, very down to work. And I could so imagine him uh, uh, singing his head off, walking down the street. And that, I mean, we used to have such good times at the Wag Club anyway. They were such good days. Such good days. I mean, that and was yeah. also connected, wasn't it? And musically, Blue Ronda a Turk, and you know what I mean. It was the Chris right. Sullivan, of course, and you know yeah. all those all those connections from the DJs, from the from the Brit funk, from all those things came together in certain clubs in always, certain pockets in London. Yeah, always, I've always had a thing for the DJs of London, of London, uh, and not just London, just some of the just where you had to know where to be. But the DJs were always so good. And I mean, at that age, you know, the 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 expansion of music that they started playing. You know, I used to go to the WAG and I used to go to all these other clubs just to hear some new music, some new jazz funk, and some new 
Brit Funk and, you know, uh, some new soul, some new jazz. It's just always fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, God, I've listened, I didn't want to talk to people. You know, like people go to clubs, man, they just talk. So why do you want to get the music is really loud. I want to go so I can hear this music loud about anybody giving you trouble and have a drink and just listen to the music. I don't want to, I don't want somebody shouting in my ear. I want to listen to it because it's the only time you can hear them. I, I like good music played loud, you know, anytime you can do that is in the club. I mean, not, not that I've been to one in a very, very long time, but that's my memory <laughs> of it. And the last few times I've tried to go to one, it's that thing where, you know, I want to hear this music. I've not heard this music in such a long time. Shout out. I don't want you talking to me right now. Let's go outside and talk. And uh, I'm just ranting now because I've just been to rehearsals. But I was going to say, the thing about, I hate it because I am a singer. The last thing that I should be doing is shouting. But you know, like when people try to talk to you in loud clubs and bars, it's so annoying because they're either shout they're shouting in your ear and you've got to shout back at them. I come home and wonder why I've got no voice left. Haven't even been singing. <laughs> Okay, so it's me <laughs> so you come out of Wham, you've got a profile because of Wham, and um, and then you get a deal with um, CBS, and it's in a sense you're pigeonholed, and in a way that doesn't fit you at all. Did you did you? have no say or no power or didn't they want you to have any say in power um it was um i was very green considering that i've been working as long you know in the business i had to i'd never ever been in a situation where i'd signed any kind of contracts um i was being looked after by somebody who at that time he thought he was doing me a favor but it was i needed the money blah 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 the long and the short of it was i got involved in this contract which I really didn't actually understand. And yes, they did totally take me away. When I, when I, when we talked about signing, they'll tell you what you want to hear. And I thought I was going to go off in this new, after working with the Brett Funk and the Wham and everything, I was going to take myself off one way. So I went to CBS uh, at the time with See The Day, uh, something else, uh, and three other songs, but all very different songs. Oh, one of them being Selena Wow Wow which was the very first track I put out on them. After Selena Wow Wow, they wouldn't listen to anything else. I had ballads. I was trying to show them how I can write for different, do you know what I mean? I can write kind of pop, I can write a bit of jazz. I, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm a little bit, there's a bit more to me and the more you give me a chance to do it, the better it will get. But they just stuck on the Selena Wow Wow thing and they just had it in their mind. Here we go, Bananarama but the black version, fantastic. Don't get me wrong, I love those girls and, and, and it was good pop and that was a good pop record, but I wanted to, like a lot of artists, you do one kind of thing and then you progress, but I didn't realize it in the pop world, once you have a thing, you, you're not allowed to, to move out of that or well, the record company won't let you do that anyway. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, but that's what it was like for me then. So yes, I kind of got stuck and it became a bit of a stalemate and we fell out spectacularly. I fell out spectacularly with those guys at the time. Yeah, that wasn't a good time. <laughs> but you got, in a, in a sense, that's, that was around the time, I presume, that you'd met Paul, Paul Weller, and um, his father helped you out of that contract. Um, he was quite a tough cookie, I it was a, he, I miss him so much. <laughs> um he wasn't having any of it and when and it started off because while I was working with them 
they wanted to do more and more work. And I said, no, I love working with you guys, but you know, but this is not my project. And I just want to be able to let loose on something of my own stuff, you know, and, and the more I work, the more I was working with the Star Council, the more I really wanted to branch out to and do, I, I love working with different people, but that was Paul's project. Wham was George and Andrew's project. Do you understand? Central Line was Central Line's project. Dee was looking, I just wanted to see if I could even do it. Just, I wanted my own project. And then it, my own project got stopped quite quickly by CBS because, you know, they just made me stick on that track and they'd started taking me off. I mean, they were taking me off to Pete Waterman and uh, Stock 8 eight, Stock eight and the Waterman. Now, I did end, uh, had a big fight with the record company, ended up going to Pete Waterman's house. And I've got to say, he was such a lovely man. And I said to him, look, I know you could probably make me a star. I know I can make loads of money. But I said, but I cannot front music that I don't respect and that I can't. I said, no, I know you make hits for everybody. I said, but I consider myself a real vocalist and I don't consider your music that great. And I thought, that's it, it's just gonna show me the door. I was in a really bad mood. And he said, let me get you a cup of tea. And he sat me down, he said, good on you. He goes, there's no way he goes, no way we're going to make any trouble for you. He goes, I totally agree with you. And he told me that he thought I was one of the one of the better British singers. And he said he really wishes me well in the future. And I heard from somebody many years later that he was asked about who he thought were good singers. And apparently my name came up. So I've got nothing but love for that guy. And, uh, you know, he could have ruined me, basically. <laughs> I was quite an arrogant little, little you-know-what. So well, um, saying that, that you were an arrogant you-know-what, you should have been arrogant. You were on top of the pops with the Style Council, who you were sessioning with at that time. And that song was Money Go Round, I think. And you were also on with Wham, Bad Boys. Whose dressing room did you sit in? <laughs> I had my own. I had two of my, I had two dressing rooms, two separate dressing rooms, which made Shirley laugh. We were running backwards and forwards to the dressing room. I was going, Shirley, look, let's go in my dressing room over here. Shelly, look, let's go to my dressing room over here. And we were just running around the back of Top of the Pops being a couple of idiots. And uh, and I was just showing off and just making everybody in the, the both bands laugh. And uh, I was going, who do I sit with at, at, you know, at break time? <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to sit together. Did so you have I a different to... outfit for each one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to run off and change outfits for, for the Wham thing and then go back and change for the whatever it was I was doing with the Star Council at that time. They were such funny days. And you know, like when you just think to yourself, I was like, wow, my luck is so strange because, you know, when I was a kid, really wanted to be on top of the pops. Then I got on top of the pops. Then I got on top of the pops twice with, with two bands at the same time. And I made kind of history that that is actually uh, the fact that people do, there's a, they use it as a quiz question sometimes, you know, like these general knowledge things. And every so often I've heard that it comes up and I, I always know when it's come up because somebody, one of my friends or family who happens to be watching one of these quiz things in the afternoon somewhere will go, oh, they just used that. Who, what artist was on top of the pops twice with two, it's something like this, you know, so it's a funny little question, but yeah, that's kind of cool. That's I mean, really obviously you were in a relationship with Paul, you got married to him later, but I just wondered in terms of, you mentioned that you were quite green and I wondered, how much of a guide he became also for the business. Um, because obviously, you know, he's someone who is, again, a little bit like George, I would say, completely. Oh, true. gosh, yeah. That's where he's going and always developing. Always, always. Um, well, he was, he was so much more sharing. 
And I really got my musical, my real musical upbringing and training, if you like, and stage presence even, if you like, from working with the Star Council because I got a lot of time to develop that. And I did a lot of touring with them in the early days, which is where I, which helped me develop my whole stage persona. I come away from being quite shy and at the back to, sorry, excuse me, to um, being up front and being just looked at to perform a vocal randomly because, you know, Paul could look at me and just go, you know, so I could do some ad libs, I could do this, I had a bit of freedom, I could add some lines, I could add extra lines on. Sometimes I would just back him up that we might not have done it recorded, but live, it might just sound better that I back him up on this. So yeah, it, you know, you kind of, I sort of learned my chops, uh, as they say, working with the Star Council. In fact, a lot of us did. I mean, Paul was already quite, you know, already very, very accomplished, but uh, he was growing up too musically and still, still is and still does. I mean, you know, still making the most fabulous music and, he is one of the most prolific and fabulous songwriters I've ever, and I'm not just saying it because I was married to him, but it's true, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah. He's written some of the most beautiful songs. I know, I know. Ever written. So it's I want to come, I want to come to see <laughs> you. Be allowed. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> that, you shouldn't be allowed to be that talented. It's not, it shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> uh, I want to come to see the day because then I think it was in 1985 um, that it became a hit and it was a massive massive hit it was sort of a timeless epic it wasn't a song of its era and it wasn't a song of any era in a sense it was no that's right yeah epic. Yeah, it was to do with the fact that when they added the strings, I think the strings that they added just really gave it that timeless sort of, you know, but to be, but before it was recorded, I had been performing it quite a lot with the Star Council because John Weller and, and Paul Weller, they heard it and I went, oh, we've got to put this in the set. We had songs like Paris Match and a woman's song. And so See the Day just, just fitted in. Uh, so we were doing it acoustically and it just went down ever so well. So when we got back and I said, I, you know, I really want to do something about John Weller. And John Weller went, well, I'm not, I couldn't say over camera what he'd said, what he said. I'll do the clean version of what he said. He, he said, babe, we're going to go and do it ourselves then. They can get lost. And uh, <laughs> he obviously really didn't talk like that at all. <laughs> if you ever met him, you know how much I'm lying. But um he, uh, but he did it. We just, all oh, we got our own money. We don't need you to do it. We're just going to do it. And we just recorded it in, in solid bond and we got the strings in. And I was just totally blown away. And I was sat there in the big studio with this big orchestra. And I was singing them. I'm going, what? It goes, do you ever see the day? And I was just, I had to keep singing it to them. And then they just started going, dip, 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 dip. I was, oh, that was so beautiful. I nearly fell off my chair. Honestly, I was totally, I had to go out the room, calm myself down and then come back in because they were all professionals, all with the strings, but it sounded so beautiful. For the first time hearing your creation, you know, I'd already got the do 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 da 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 had all, all that and that's already gorgeous and that on its own was lovely. But man, when those guys put those strings on, well, you know, you know, because <laughs> I... The, my own song with the strings on like that gives, still gives me um, goosebumps. It really does. So, and I'm so proud of that song. So, so proud of it. Did you feel all the 
I'm going to use the word pain, but all the all the things that you'd gone through with this song and also being a session singer, being in a sense in the shadow of always other people um, and them having the main success, that this was something where you could sit back and go, hey, I did it. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, I've never had so far anything do as well uh, chart-wise, if you like, uh, than this, than this particular, just this one song, not the album, not anything. But uh, hey, it's all good. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I sat, I've set out to do a lot of things which I never really thought I would do. And if anything, I did them and then some. So I can't even say more than that. I'll always keep trying. I'm always going to keep writing. I'm always going to, well, up to a point anyway, <laughs> going to keep making music and singing and stuff like that. Um, and I'm hoping every time that I'm doing it, because, you know, like you said, I've not done anything in ages. So coming from See the Day to what you're going to hear and what you're going to hear in the, the, the this new stuff that, that's coming out. And um, take it you've heard what I put out as a single. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I'm tell just... Tell me how that came about. Going. Because that, in a sense, it was a sort of lockdown, a lockdown gift, let's call it. Yeah, yeah, the only bloody gift it gave us, that's for sure. But I'm grateful <laughs> for that, I must say. Yeah, that was a terrible, terrible time, I've got to say. And what happened, so, so at that time, the only good thing that happened to me was that I bumped into my good friend, Eddie Pillar, and he was like, Dee, come on, you know, what are you doing? You you gotta sing, you gotta, you can't, you know. And I was like, babes, do you know what? That's a really good idea. And I do, I've been feeling I wanted to sing for a long time, but, and I've, I've got some songs in the, you know, but I, I didn't know how to do it. I wasn't sure how to get out there and I haven't got the energy to do all the self-promotion and all that. I do need a label or somebody working with me. So it was like a godsend. And I said, if you're serious, do it, let's do it. The next day he rang. And uh, we just got got the ball got the ball rolling from there. We talked about what we were going to do, what music, and, and so I, got, I got so excited. And uh, yeah, and I mean, the two, and yeah, the two tracks I've heard feel really like what is really you, what you've been into, what is really you. It's obviously on uh, Pillars label, Acid Jazz Records, and also you worked with Mike. Uh, McAvoy, McAvoy. Yeah, yeah, and Ernest McCone. I don't know. If yes, you and that way. Ernie McCone. Yeah. Ernest, yeah. So, sorry. Tell me about working with them, and and a little bit about the track. Right. Okay. So working with well, these guys for a start, they're very old friends of mine. I've worked with Ernie and Mike over the last uh, few albums that I've done. I've, they're kind of like my go-to team. Uh, most of the time when I want to put some music together and most of the uh, a lot of tracks I've got a lot of tracks with those guys but don't forget about love was particularly beautiful um and they had the backing track that they, they we just we were jamming on it in the studio and it sounded really lovely so I got it back home and all it made me think of was summer all I could think of was summer don't forget about love and also not just summer about light and love and at that time obviously there's so much sadness and I was really worried about my what I was going to write because everybody you know understandably you know you you write what you feel and it's very hard to feel happy in those freaking times you know and uh but I just happened to I literally was looking out the window it was a sort of a day a bit like today rainy gray and horrible but just suddenly out of nowhere there was this 
bolt of um, sunshine. And it's like when I say on your way down, try to look, uh, try to look past the clouds. When I say on your on your way down, that's like when you're going into depression, when you're starting to feel sad. You know, you just look up and look past the clouds, and you'll see. You know, you you you'll see you you'll see something. You'll see some sun. Now, my thing is this is like fantasy too. So the the way I wrote that, you know, just a look to the look past the clouds, and then you'll see. You'll just see. You got you got to remember what makes you happy. You got to hang on to those memories and forget. At the you know you can't forget what's happening around you at the time. You have to go with it. Yeah, but you must never forget what you're about and. The, the whole point of your being is where I think I was going with that one. I like to get a bit deep. <laughs> so tell me about how it feels. Yeah. You had this, I mean, I haven't mentioned uh, Dr. Robert, Robert Howard. I haven't mentioned Guru and so on. And I haven't mentioned your albums that you had out in Japan. And I haven't mentioned some of the small acting jobs that you've had along the way. <laughs> Thank but, goodness. Thank uh, goodness I'm that energy. <laughs> <laughs> but the, and also being a mother, what do you think being, I know this sounds really, this maybe is a male who hasn't got kids question, but what do you feel being a mother has given you um, creatively in terms of your perspective on career, your perspective on what you do and love? Um, that's funny because by the time I thought about having kids, I had to give up the career for a bit because I could not, I, I could not uh, marry them together. The the reality of how much thinking time and everything you've got to do when you have kids to trying to make music and you have to have space in your mind and you have to have time, for me personally anyway, I'm not one of these writers who can write under stress. I need to be chill chilling. I can't, you know, I can sometimes get like an earworm of, a, of a, a musical vibe and I'll just put that down and come back to it later. But I found it really hard. I couldn't concentrate uh, because I was too worrying about the, the bubbies. And then when I tried to do both, I found myself being a crap singer and a crap mum. So <laughs> I wasn't doing myself any favours. So I just stepped out for a little while. I had to step out and try and, you know, try and... Yeah. But try maybe, and maybe in terms of, you know, you mentioned about, you know, Central Line and there you were being a bit pushy trying to get in and that with Wham, you know, like being a yeah. bit more upfront and so on. And and then when you have children, your perspective on life often changes and so much. Um, success means a different thing. So what does success mean for you today in difference to what it meant when you were younger? It means that success just means that I get to do a job that I actually like rather than being forced to go and do something that I don't want to do so that's how I see it because it is it is a job but it's also a job most people don't get most people don't get to work at something that they actually enjoy most of us have to do the job you know because you need the money and you know blah 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 so that gives me a freedom so that's what this is what it means to me uh but um, I'm sorry, I, I'm not quite sure if I totally understood the question. Because I think it's that... no, but okay. Success. Often people look at success as the goal, and success can actually oh, be just I... just doing. If you're allowed to do what you want, I understand that can be success. It's not about being number one in the charts. No, it's... no, no, no. I totally understand. Well, in that case, I'm actually a very, very fulfilled 
person. I really have, yeah, I understand that, sorry. Um, I, I really, really feel um, very happy with, I, I, I've done everything in my career that I've wanted to do. I have actually done everything I wanted to do. Um, I don't want to just sit around. There's nothing else I really enjoy other than my kids, my friends and family. I like a nice food, I like eating out, you know, love a holiday, love a bit of sunshine. Uh, but other than that, I'm quite boring and I really just like music and I like making music. And because I've already achieved everything that I want to do, that's great, but I do want to keep making music. So even after what I'm doing now, I've already got it in my head where I'm going to next. And the next step after this set of music is de-collaborating with youngsters, especially some young jazz artists and people like that. So, so I'm just free because I feel that if I just give up, I'm not the sort of person who just sit around, believe it or not, I can't sit around. And I love gardening and all these sorts of nonsense, but they are meant to be the hobbies, not, not the doing it all day. I like to have, I like to be doing something, my job, making music and then, you know, having weekends off and, and time out when I want to. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm a very, very fulfilled and happy artist and I'm probably luckier than most, but yeah, I'm very grateful for where I am at the, today. I want to ask you one last question because you mentioned earlier, you said, I'm not the best singer. This is right at the beginning of the interview. You said something like, I am not the best singer around. Um, you are pretty good, but but I want to say that you've worked with so many greats. You know, you worked with George Michael. You worked with, well, obviously, Paul Weller. You worked with Robert Howard. The thing is, you worked with some of the greatest icons, you know, of of particularly of the era where, where you know, your work was centred on. You were working with these amazing people. So what do you think you had apart from the quality of your voice because obviously there is a great quality to your voice what do you think else that you had that made these people be attracted to you because there must have been a reason well i did have a gun through their heads for a start and <laughs> um i actually i'm actually i think uh, i'm a bit of a i'm a bit of a laugh uh i'm quite easy to get on with um I find that I, I find that uh, these things are, are never a problem because it just I can only work with people when it's kind of organic and it is just you just fall in. So I don't know. People just like me. What can I say? I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, I like you too, but I want to say at the oh, end. Thank um, you. I mean, I think it's great that you're you're making music again. I think it's really fantastic that you're going to build up to an album. You have Don't Forget About Love. You mentioned Be There in the Morning was another track. Yes. Um, which is a, a really great, great track as well. Um, and you're still making music. You're still singing. You're still out there. And you still have the charisma that you always had. And again... I had a great morning and a great early afternoon, and it's been lovely to meet you as well. Thank you, your my music darling. And your personality. So, thank Dizzy you. Lee, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much, darling. You have a good rest of the day, yeah? Okay, bye. Bye. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews, and here is where you can connect. <laughs> 
At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you.